In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. My Lord, my God, I firmly believe that you are here, that you see me, and that you hear me. I adore you with profound reverence. I ask your pardon for my sins, for the grace to make this time of prayer fruitful. My Immaculate Mother, St. Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me. As we continue this journey of Advent, preparing for Christmas, the coming of our Lord as a child, Bethlehem, we read from the prophet Isaiah in the first reading of today's Mass of the beautiful promise of our Lord's coming, the incredible potential for change, growth, improvement that we have, Lord, in you in your presence, and in your redemption. Isaiah prophesies, The desert and the parched land will exult, the steppe will rejoice and bloom. They will bloom with abundant flowers and rejoice with joyful song. The glory of Lebanon will be given to them, the splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. The Holy Spirit here uses images from nature to get across to us this wonderful promise of our new life in Jesus, the wonderful potential that our Lord comes to bring to the world. And they're images of beauty and of a great renewal, a great change from barrenness to fruitfulness from a certain dryness or infertility to a great bursting forth of life and fertility. The steppe will rejoice, the parched land will exult, they will bloom with abundant flowers, they will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. The imagery moves from nature, the things of nature, to us, to human beings. Strengthen the hands that are feeble, make firm the knees that are weak, say to those whose hearts are frightened, be strong, fear not. Here is your God. He comes with vindication, with divine recompense. He comes to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened, the ears of the deaf be cleared. Then will the lame leap like a stag. Then the tongue of the mute will sing. Those whom the Lord has ransomed will return and enter Zion, singing, crowned with everlasting joy. They will meet with joy and gladness, sorrow and mourning will flee. Lord Jesus, your coming is a moment of joy, it's a moment of strength, and it's an occasion for us to experience all these things, a true transformation in our life to be emboldened and to be gladdened and to be freed by God's presence in our life. And perhaps to summarize, for the purposes of our own prayer, for the purposes of our own spiritual life, this kind of promise of transformation, this promise of healing, strengthening, basically comes down to two truths, two core principles that we believe in as Christians. The first is that God 
is all-powerful. God exists. God is real. He's the creator of heaven and earth. And as creator of heaven and earth, he's infinitely powerful. God can do all things. I believe in God, the Father Almighty. And the second is that God is good. And so therefore, God wants to use his power to love, to make things better, and specifically to help us, his children. As we look forward to Christmas, these are the core truths that should shape our minds and our life. God is all-powerful. God can do all things. God can change all things. And God is good. God is my Father. God loves me in His Son, Jesus Christ. And so that power is used on my behalf to protect me, to heal me, to make me strong, to make me grow. In preaching about St. Paul, about the gospel in general, Bishop Barron often talks about the word metanoia, St. Paul's word for conversion. And it's a beautiful word. It, in the Greek, it literally means beyond mind, meta, beyond noia, noose or mind. And the point there is that we need to go beyond the mind we have now when we believe in Jesus, when we encounter our Lord, when we welcome our Lord into the world, into our life. We go beyond the mind we have to get a new mind. That's very powerful. That we get a new way of thinking. We get a new way of seeing things. We get a new way of evaluating and judging reality in our faith, in Christ. And I think one of the things that means is that our mind has to run on new core principles. It has to run on new fundamental truths. And these are two of them that I think are, are absolutely essential. This God who exists is all-powerful, can do all things, can change all things. And this God who exists is all good. And so he wants to use that power on behalf of men and women, on, be, on behalf of mankind. But getting a new mind takes practice. We have it with the gift of faith. But to think with that new mind and to judge with that new mind and to plan with that new mind and to intuit or to see things almost instinctively with that new mind. Well, take some work and, and, and where do we start? How do we let those truths truly be the foundation of our thought and our evaluation of life? Well, in the first place, I think, contemplation. Right? They're truths that have to be thought about. We have to sit with them. St. Josemaria used to say we should be steeped in the love of God. Right? We have to let our soul, like a tea bag, we have to let our soul sit and steep in the love of God. As if the love of God were pot of hot water, big mug with boiling water in it, and we dunk our soul in it. And that happens, among other ways, but very importantly, by prayer, by contemplation, right? to sit down and just to think that, that God loves me, 
God, who's all-powerful, who exists, who's real, created the whole universe, can do all things, loves me. All that power is on my side. St. Josemaria encouraged the members of Opus Dei, his sons and daughters in Opus Dei, to consider frequently, every day, their divine filiation. He encouraged them to, to examine themselves. Have I considered frequently, each day, my divine filiation? And to consider it is just that, right? To think about it, to, <laughs> to contemplate it, to let that truth truly sink in, to be a foundation of our thought. And then I think we need to get into the habit of actually reminding ourselves of those core truths when we think about our lives, when we think about some problem in our life or some task we have to do. We can't just think, well, oh, this is the problem. Okay, what do I have to do to fix it? What do I have to do to solve this problem? Or okay, I have some task. Okay, what do I have to do to get it done? And then immediately we just start thinking of practical things that we can do. I think with metanoia, with this new mind, it's good for us to be a little bit more slow in our deliberation, a little bit more reflective in how we think about how to do even very practical things. Okay, I have this problem. And before we start thinking, what can I do and how can I solve it? Maybe we should remind ourselves of these core truths. God is all-powerful. God exists. God is with me. God loves me. God wants to help me. And in the light of that, what should I do or how should I do it? In the light of these incredible truths that I have with this new mind in my faith, what should I do and how should I do it? What should my attitude be? towards this problem or towards this relationship or towards this task. And that's not easy, right? Because we, we're kind of like hybrid cars, right? A hybrid car. Sometimes it's running on gas when it has to accelerate or go uphill. And then when it's cruising along or stops, it shuts off, right? <laughs> um, when it's cruising along, it's running on electricity, right? the, just the battery, and that's a little bit like us, right? When we're praying or when we think about certain things, we, we're running on faith, we're running on the metanoia, the new mind. But in other things, we're used to depending on ourselves or we're used to thinking in a worldly way about, about other areas or factors of our life. And so whether you prefer electric cars or you prefer traditional engines. In the spiritual life, we want one fuel source. We want one power source. We want one source of deliberation, which is our faith, which isn't to say we don't think humanly, practically, but we think humanly, practically, influenced on the faith, based in the faith, grounded in those principles of our faith. God is good, God loves us, and God can do all things. God is all-powerful and is with us. After having us consider this incredible power of God to change things for the better, the liturgy in the second reading encourages us 
to patience, to be patient with God. Be patient, brothers and sisters, St. James writes to the first Christians. Be patient, brothers and sisters, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient with it, until it receives the early and the late rains. You too must be patient. Make your hearts firm, because the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not complain, brothers and sisters, about one another, that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing before the gates. Take as an example of hardship and patience, brothers and sisters, the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. And patience is important because when we look at those principles we just considered, revealed to us by the power of God to change things, to make things better, and his willingness to do so, we might mistakenly think that with faith, we can kind of manufacture a response from God at will and a response from God according to our will. And we have to remember that God is free and God is all wise and all knowing and his ways are not our ways and his thoughts are above our human thoughts. And so having faith in God's power and trust really does unlock his power on our behalf. Nevertheless, that trust, which unlocks his power, doesn't give us power over God. It doesn't make God subject to our whims or our will, however good we think our wishes or our will is. And so God might have good reasons to not help us right away, because he wants us to grow in patience or because he wants us to grow in trust or because he wants us to purify and reflect on what we're asking for. Perhaps he wants us to increase the desire we have for whatever we're asking for or increase our trust in his help that he will help us in one way or another eventually. And so God has many reasons in his own wisdom and and for our own good, for our good, for delaying, for not coming right away to our help with that power, with that love of his for us. Recently I had dinner with a couple and a very nice couple. They have young children still. And it was time for dinner and their son is like four years old. He um, wanted to sit with his mother on one side and with his baby sister, who's like eight months old, on the other side. And so it came time for dinner, and that wasn't the exact arrangement yet. No one knew that he wanted this. Right? And so when he, it was suggested to him that he sit in a certain place, but he wasn't flanked by his mother and his baby sister, the poor little boy started crying. And through his tears, explaining in that toddler way, with that toddler logic, why he was so upset. Um, Because, you know, I want to sit both next to mommy and to my little sister. And the father looked at him with a kind of amused smile. And 
you know, there was a guest over and the boy's very emotional and <laughs> obviously I have a big heart. He wants to be close to his little sister, be close to his mother. He wasn't going to like resist and say, no, you know, it's no big deal. You sit over here and offer it up. <laughs> he just kind of, he just kind of smiled and said, okay, don't worry. We'll, we'll do it that way. We know it's real important. A little note of sarcasm in his voice, trying to get a subtle message across. <laughs> we know it's real important that you sit right there with those people around you. The boy didn't pick up at all on the, uh, on the sarcasm, was just very happy to get his way. And so sometimes God treats us like that, right? That we have our heart set on something and it's not that big of a deal for God. And yet he sees how much we want it and he doesn't want us to suffer unnecessarily. And so he'll give it to us. But we're not three years old or not four years old. I don't think anyone listening and understanding this is four years old. I might be mistaken. But, um, you know, so at times God is going to say, no, you don't need that exactly the way you want it, or you don't need it yet. And so trust me. And it, like the little boy, we're frustrated. We cry and we might get angry about God's inaction or indecisiveness in that moment. So Lord, help us with this belief in your goodness, this belief in your power to change. You're coming this Christmas once again into my heart, to change my heart, into my home, to change my home, into this world, to change the world. At the same time, Lord, give me this super trust in your plan, that if you delay, it's okay. That if you don't give me what I want right away, it's not really a problem. It only seems like a problem. The gospel goes on to speak of John the Baptist and his relationship with Jesus. John the Baptist, at this point in the gospel of Matthew, is in prison. And we know how that's going to end up. He's going to be martyred. And he sends these disciples to ask our Lord a question. When John the Baptist heard in prison of the works of the Christ... He sent his disciples to Jesus with this question. Are you the one who is to come? Or should we look for another? Sometimes I think that maybe John the Baptist is sending this question to our Lord. Not so much for his own sake, but for the sake of his disciples. Maybe what he's doing is trying to get them to move from being his disciples to being disciples of our Lord exclusively. Recently, I thought about this, and I think perhaps it comes down to something that is um, very understandable and gets to this point of trusting God's plan when God's plan doesn't fit with our desires or our plans. Are you the one who is to come, or should we look for another? John the Baptist at this point is in prison. And so he's been playing this role for Christ as precursor, as the last prophet. And Christ is here and he's, and he's preaching and he's 
working and he's doing things. And yet John himself is in prison. Right? So from John's perspective, right, from the perspective of how his role is playing out right now and even his future prospects, right? It doesn't seem too good, right? It's not working out that well for him personally, at least from a human point of view. And so he is like, is that, is this right? Is this, is this it? I mean, this is the Messiah. And I'm like one of his lieutenants and here I am in prison. And so he sends this question, like, are you really him? Do you know what you're doing? Jesus said to them in reply, and here's Jesus' answer. Jesus said to them in reply, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind regained their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have the good news proclaimed to them. And blessed is the one who takes no offense at me. And so our Lord, in this beautiful answer, says, look, I'm doing things that only God can do. I'm doing things that were predicted in the prophet Isaiah about the coming of the Messiah. As we read in that first reading, here is your God. He comes with vindication, with divine recompense. He comes to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened, the ears of the deaf be cleared. Then will the lame leap like a stag. Then the tongue of the mute will sing. And Jesus says to John through those apostles, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind regain their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. The poor have the good news proclaimed to them. And this is very important. right? The miracles of our Lord, the historical reality of Jesus' life and of Jesus' miracles. Very important aspect of our faith. And the further we get away in time from the gospel, the more we have to consciously and deliberately remind ourselves of this, that Jesus did these things really and truly on our earth. Jesus of Nazareth, true man, true God, yes, but the divinity was hidden. A true man it did these things and many, many miracles and rose from the dead. And his disciples, his first members of the church, saw the resurrection. They saw our Lord dead and then alive again, resurrected in a glorious state. And many people saw these incredible miracles. And we too, Lord, realize that in our life at times, you know, from our point of view, it's like we're John in the jail. And we have to remind ourselves that that there's many fruits of the Christian faith and the church throughout the world and throughout history. There have been many saints. There have been we don't know how many, but millions and millions of souls saved from sin and happy in heaven forever now because of Jesus. And he performed many miracles in his life, and many miracles have been done since then through the intercession of the saints and through prayer to our Lord. And many good things are still happening now. And yet, part of his plan is that the church and the saints should also Suffer, suffer limitation, suffer persecution, 
suffer misunderstanding, even at times suffer martyrdom. And so when we find ourselves, like John the Baptist, personally limited and personally suffering, we have to do what Jesus tries to get him to do. Look at the big picture. And even though you're sitting in prison, and even though your life is frustrating, and even though you're suffering, and even though I'm not answering your own personal prayers, you're part of this team. You're part of this mission. Your suffering and your patience is part of what's making all of this work. And so Jesus says, blessed is the one who takes no offense at me. And John's kind of offended. He's kind of disappointed. It's like, ah, well, Jesus is out there doing all these good things and these things are going forward. But what about me, right? <laughs> I'm here in prison and the king is mad at me and I'm going to get my head cut off. Wait, what about me? And Jesus says, don't take offense at my plan. You're part of this. And then very beautifully, while John's disciples are departing, and so the implication is that they can still hear what Jesus says, as they were going off, right, as those disciples are on their way leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out to the desert to see? A reed swayed by the wind? Then what did you go out to see? Someone dressed in fine clothing? Those who wear fine clothing are in royal palaces. Then why did you go out? To see a prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I am sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way before you. Amen, I say to you, among those born of women, there has been none greater than John the Baptist. Yet the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And so this is very beautiful, I think, and, and just incredible to think about that John the Baptist expresses this doubt, this concern, that perhaps Jesus isn't the Messiah, that Jesus isn't the one. Right? He's sincere enough to talk to Jesus about his doubts, right? given his own personal situation, what he's, what he's going through. And Jesus doesn't just tell them, look, you have to believe because I'm doing all these miracles and just, you know, just trust me. He also confirms John's role and he affirms John in his vocation, in his goodness, in an incredible way. Amen, I say to you, among those born of women, there has been none greater than John the Baptist, right? He's greater than Moses. He's greater than David. He's greater than Isaiah. He's greater than Elijah, he's greater than Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. An incredible compliment from our Lord right, to John, who, you know, even though he's so great, is sitting there in prison, right, limited, powerless. God seemingly perhaps not answering his prayers for, for deliverance so he can get back out and get back to work. He's greater than all of them because of his closeness to God because of his special relationship to Jesus Christ, to be the final prophet, to be his precursor. And then Jesus affirms us, yet the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Incredible dignity of the Christian. Incredible power we have to be like God, to take God into the world, to be instruments of these wonderful spiritual changes that God wants to bring about. 
of these wonderful spiritual miracles of conversion, that we, with our apostolate, help people to walk again who morally were limping and help people to see again who were spiritually blind and help people to hear the word of God, the gospel, through our friendship and our apostolate, our evangelization. And people who are morally and spiritually dead come back to life because we bring them to God, we bring them to the sacraments, we bring them to the faith. The least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he because, Lord, because of our baptism and because of the sacraments, your life in us, we're closer to you than even John the Baptist was. And so we wait with joyful hope in this Advent season, the coming of Jesus. We wait patiently, as we just read, but that doesn't mean we're passive. We know that God wants to move in the world and he wants to move in the church through us. So we don't just sit around waiting. At the same time, we're impatient to get to work. We have a patient impatience. Lord, you count on my initiative. You count on my knowing what's right and wrong. You count on my love to get to work, to start making things better already, now. Show me, Lord, the ways that I can be patiently impatient for your coming through my own initiative, my own freedom. I can open myself with an act of waiting so that when you do come, I'm already moving, I'm already ready to take the ball and run with it. We go to Our Lady. These are great days to pray to Our Lady. We just celebrated the Immaculate Conception, and then yesterday we had the Feast of Our Lady of Loretto. Tomorrow we have Our Lady Guadalupe. And all of Advent, right, we see Our Lady waiting for our Lord, and yet already loving Him in her womb. We go to her, Our Lady, our hope. Help us to patiently wait for the Lord, and in the meantime, to reflect on ways that we can be ready for the changes he wants us to make and perhaps already start making them. I thank you, my God, for the good resolutions, affections, and inspirations which you have communicated to me in this meditation. I ask your help to put them into effect. My Immaculate Mother, St. Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me.